evangelists. When you hear the word evangelize or you hear the witness and you think of it in in, uh, your own perspective, what's the first emotion that comes up? (laughs) Oh boy. You feel fear at at saying anything to uh, people? Uh, do you feel guilt for something that you haven't haven't done? All these emotions kind of kind of come up. I heard someone once say, and I, I don't know who it is. Someone can probably tell me afterwards. But they said, "I wish I felt uh, before I witnessed someone the way I felt afterwards." Because afterwards, you feel so good that you've stepped out, you've done this thing that God has called you. But before, there's so much fear and there's so much uh, trepidation, and so. That's what we're going to look at today. And maybe you've never even witnessed to anybody. Or maybe you witnessed to someone, but it was so long ago, you don't really remember what it was like. Or maybe you're the kind of person who every time you go to the grocery store, the Dunkin' Donuts, you're witnessing to somebody. Um, but no matter what your past is and no matter what your practices are, it's always good to learn and it's always good to review. So today we're going to kind of take like a broad picture of witnessing and evangelism. And God has given us examples. He's given us people who have gone before, so we can look at them and we can watch them and we can see them. And so this is Paul and Silas who we're going to be looking at at today. So last week, Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And Paul and Silas were beaten and they were thrown into prison. And they didn't give up. And the Holy Spirit still continued to work in their lives. And the Word of God went forward. And so this morning, we're going to follow them on the next leg of their journey. We're going to go to Thessalonica, and then after that, we're going to go to Berea with them. And we're going to see how they witnessed and how they evangelized. So let's pray real quick before we read uh, Acts chapter 17. Father God, we come before you this morning. And we just ask that you'll be with us. Holy Spirit, we ask that mere words that I speak become life. We're asking for a miracle this morning, Lord, that words transfer into life and into practice. And Lord, when it comes to telling other people our faith and sharing, we so often approach with fear and with guilt. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that that will change today and that we'll do it out of love. So be with us, Lord. Holy Spirit, open your word to us. What I cannot do as a person, I ask you to do as God. Open your word to us this morning, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. It says, now when they had passed through, and you know, I should have asked Phil how to pronounce these things beforehand, and that was my intention, but I didn't, so I'm, making, I'm going out on a limb in these two pronunciations, but now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, 
were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find him, they dragged Jason and some of the others before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. What we want to do this morning is look at this and take this, uh, this story and, and just evangelism and take it apart and look at it piece by piece so that we can learn from it, so we can do it ourselves. The first piece that we want to look at is Paul's heart for evangelizing. We want to start there and want to look at his heart before we look at his method or his message afterwards. So Acts chapter 9 tells this story about Paul's conversion. And in that story, he's blinded and he goes to a guy named Ananias. And God speaks to Ananias about Paul before Paul gets there. And Ananias, it's through Ananias that God is going to give Paul, his sight back. He has no sight for three days. When God speaks to Ananias, he says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's chosen by God to be an evangelist. He's chosen to bring God's word to all these people. And God tells him beforehand, you will suffer when you do this. Can you imagine what that would be like to get that news? It's like good news and bad news. I got a word from God. I'm going to go through. I'm going to be this big evangelist. But the bad news is I'm going to suffer the whole time because of it and everything that you go through. You know, what would you, what would you do? Would you just grab it and go? Or, or would you be like, you know, Jonah and try to find the first boat out of Dodge? You know, just get out of there. Well, Paul doesn't run away. Paul embraces it. And he goes from place after place, beating after beating, stoned to the point of death. And he keeps on going. And from Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica. From, Fe- from Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. He keeps on going. How does he do it? What was his heart like that would enable him to do this. Because you think he just felt like, oh, God said I have to witness. It's just like check a box. I'll check a box. Okay, here, I've done that. Now let's go on and do something fun. With that kind of an attitude enables you to do it, you know, how big is his view on evangelism in order to do that? 
Because can you keep on going after being beaten with just a shallow view of evangelism and just a shallow view of what is at stake if people don't believe? Could you keep on going if it's your very own people who are beating you and trying to kill you if there wasn't something deep, something deep inside that drove you on? And you know, it was something more that Paul had. It was a love that he had. And it was a love that I can't even really comprehend the love that he had. And it's, it's nothing that I've ever experienced a love as great as what he had. Because he had a love that was like Christ's. Listen to Romans 9, chapter 13. I think we have this one up there. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What drives a person to speak like this? To act like this? To live like this? To love enough to want to give up your own salvation if it meant saving other people. Jesus in Luke chapter 7 says that he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. Paul was forgiven much and he knew it. He was persecuting Christians. He was throwing them in jail. He was hunting them down. He was standing there watching while they were killed. He was holding the jackets for the people to kill these Christians. He calls himself the chief of sinners. But Jesus Christ forgave him. And Paul knew that he was forgiven much. And so Paul loved much. If God can forgive someone like Paul, he can forgive us. So it was this love that he had which drove him on. The second thing is the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot read Acts. You cannot read Acts and not see the Holy Spirit all the way through it. And it is his power that drives the whole book of Acts over well. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, Paul preached Christ at Thessalonica, though he had been beaten at Philippi and had scarcely escaped from the great danger. So we see how brave he was in following his calling. He continually faced new dangers. This great strength of mind and patient enduring of the cross are sufficient evidence that Paul did not work in a human way, but he had the heavenly power of the Spirit. It was the Spirit that drove him. It was his love for being forgiven that drove him. And if God can fill someone like Paul with the power of the Holy Spirit, he can fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit as well. So what can we take? What can we learn from seeing Paul's heart, this piece about his heart? What can we learn about this? God gave Paul the job of evangelizing, and he gave him the heart and the power to do it. God has given us the job of evangelizing and he will give us the heart and he will give us the power to do it as well.
pray that God will give you a heart that knows how much it has been forgiven, that loves the lost, that would be willing to give all for them, just as Paul would be willing to give his very salvation, just as Jesus Christ gave his very life for us. So the second piece. The second piece we want to look at is his method and his message for evangelizing. And we see as we go through Acts and we look at Paul's encounters, we see that his method changes depending on who he talked to. His method is different depending on their background and what they knew beforehand. Last week in Philippi it says, he sat down and he spoke on the riverbanks to the people gathered there. And then when he was in prison, what did he do? He sang, he prayed, and he didn't escape when he had the opportunity to escape. And what happens? The Philippian jailer comes to him and says, what must I do to be saved? But when we see Paul talking to the Jewish people who have this huge background and they know these scriptures, he goes right to the scriptures and he explains the scriptures. He reasons with them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that they are waiting for. And although his method changes and the way he approaches people changes, the message itself is always the same. He preaches Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. It says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So he comes here, he comes to Thessalonica, and he goes right into the synagogue. Even though we know what happened at Philippi, he does this, he goes right into the synagogue again. Although I guess those weren't Jewish people at Philippi, so forget that. But <laughs> we'll see he does the same thing at, at Berea. Um, but anyway, he goes right into the synagogue. This is his custom, and he preaches for three weeks in a row. He reasons, he explains, and he proves. And so his message here is going to these Jews who know the scriptures and have this background. So he uses those Jewish arguments. The argument that he uses has two pieces to it that he wants to prove. It says, number one, according to the scriptures, the Messiah would have to suffer, die, and rise again. The second part, once they've understood that, they read the scriptures, okay, this is what has to happen. His second part is, he says, Jesus is this Messiah. He's the one who came as the penalty for your sins. He's the one who suffered, who died, who rose again in order for you to be saved. He is the one. So in this passage, he doesn't repeat the sermon word for word, but we have an example of that in, in Acts chapter 13. Just a few minutes prior, we have one of those. And so he doesn't repeat it again. He just says this is what he did. And we can assume when he gets to Berea, it's the same message because it says he goes right into the synagogue as well. So what can we learn from piece number two? What can we learn from his method and his message of evangelism? Our method may be different, but our message is still going to be the same. And when we talk to our friends, when we talk to our family, when we talk to our co-workers, our methods need to change with them because we need to be sensitive to who they are. We need to know their background. We need to know... Uh, you know, about them and where they're coming from. We need to listen 
to them. But the message itself is still going to be the same. It is Jesus Christ who saves. It is Christ alone who saves. So, God calls us to witness. This is what we're, we're called to do. And it's going to look different for different people. Some people are just naturally more vocal. Some people have an easier time talking to uh, uh, people. Some are much more quiet. So let's just look at a couple of the ways that are in scriptures of how to do this. First Peter is the first one we're going to look at. We have this uh, here. It says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. In this case that we're looking at right here, the wife doesn't even have to say anything. She just has to lead a holy life. And it says if she does this, the husband may be won. And this concept of leading holy lives to witness is found in different places. So, just in a broad thing for all of us, Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your life shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Peter says the same thing in First Peter. He says this. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Another way that we can witness, which isn't as vocal as some of these other ways are, is by our generosity in giving. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look what they do. It says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So here's a case where giving has affected other people and they've praised God before and they've known about it. We have friends who are down in Rhode Island and uh, uh, they have neighbors who have gone through a severe financial crisis and have just absolutely no money because of this financial crisis. And our friend Carrie uh, called us up and called a bunch of um, Christians that she knows and said, look, here's the situation. These people aren't Christians. They've gone through this horrible thing. I'd like to give them you know, some money to help out. And so we gave him some, and many other people gave money. I don't know what the amount was at all, but she gave this money to this, this woman and her family and explained, these were Christians who don't know you, but wanted to help you out. And this woman was greatly affected by it. And we don't know what the ultimate outcome of this is, but she knows that these are Christians who care for me, who love me, even if they don't even know who I am. They're still doing this. But we must be vocal. 
when we can. When we have the chance, when the Holy Spirit gives us these words. Listen once more to Calvin. He's talking to Paul. About Paul, he says, But Paul's persistence was amazing. After such an experience of their stubbornness and their malice towards his nation, he never stopped trying to bring people to Christ. No injury inflicted by other people could lead him away from his calling. All of Christ's servants must fight the world's malice in this way. Now we still might feel weak or scared when we talk to someone and bring it up. Paul himself didn't always feel bold and strong. Listen to the prayer of Paul's in Ephesians chapter 6. This is Paul praying. He says, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He's like, pray for me that I can open my mouth. (laughs) If Paul needs that prayer, how much more do we need that prayer? How much more do we need to pray for each other and to pray for us here at King and Grace that we will have boldness to open our mouth, to proclaim Jesus Christ? There's many different ways that we can do this. And we've looked at some of these. I just talked to Annie. Annie, my daughter's in uh, South Africa right now. She works uh, for a ministry called Mercy Ships. It's a hospital ship that goes through Africa and does free surgeries for people. It is a Christian-based ship. They go from place to place and just do free surgeries. There's one surgeon for every two million people in the area that they go to. On that board, they take on the ship on board. They take people from all over the all over the world that go there. I think there's it's either 30 or 60 different nations that are on board. I don't remember. It's a big ship. There's about 400 people on there. And so some of these people who come, although it's a Christian-based thing, might not be Christians. And so they have in the morning they have like a devotional time that they have to get together. And once a, uh, you know they kind of like plot out the day and this. So there's a guy there. She told me this morning, this very morning, who accepted Christ as his Savior, who became a Christian. And I said, because it was a friend of hers, and so I asked her, I said, well, you know, were you, were you bold? Did you talk? Did you, you know, what did you do? And she said, well, she said, he knew I was a Christian, and we kind of talked, and we had, you know, different discussions and stuff. And she said one of them was on evolution, and he was always believed in evolution, and I was telling him about, you know, um, you know creative design and you know, and she said it was more almost like a scientific thing. She said, but these were some of the things that we talked about. And so for Annie to talk to this, you know, person, she's only one small piece. And he looks at her and says, this is what a Christian is. She's leading a holy life. When it comes to uh, um, evolution, she makes a stand. And she says, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it isn't just, you know, happenstance. And so... Along with that, they have the Bible studies. Along with that, we, they have the other people that he meets. Along with that, they have the, uh, um, the church service. And so in the, his months aboard, just this one thing, and he ends up being one small piece of God's plan to bring this person to, to Christ. So the next piece that we want to look at, and this is the people's response. 
And this is really what Luke wants us to see in this passage, because he wants us to see the contrast between these people in Thessalonica and these people in Berea. And this is really what he wants to show. Half these people accept Paul's message. Half these people reject Paul's message. So we want to start looking at those who reject it. Specifically, we want to look at the Jews who are in Thessalonica. It says most of the Jews were jealous. It says they formed, they get these wicked men and they form a mob. Just stop and think about what they do, right? These are the spiritual people. These are the leaders. And they just can't stand Paul and just his message. They reject it so violently that after three weeks, only three weeks, they're like, we can't take it anymore. Three weeks are gone. We want to kill this guy. That's basically what it is. So they get some wicked men and they form a mob. So this mob comes up. The mob is in an uproar. And they come to Jason's house and they attack Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. And they want to drag him out. They want to go in. They want to drag him out and just throw him in front of this mob. Can you imagine what would have happened if they would have got him? And it's funny, when I, when, I was, when I was trying to picture what this mob looks like, I'm trying to picture all these people. I can't really picture a mob. The only thing I can picture is a celebration after someone wins like the World Series or after they win the Super Bowl or after they win one of the major the soccer, soccer things, right? What happens to those cars that are right next to outside of the stadium, right? They're rolled over, they turn, all this stuff like that. And this is a happy mob. <laughs> so, you know, if, they, if a happy mob can do this much destruction, how much can an angry mob do against two people? Paul and Silas. These people don't have a chance at all. But this is what happens. And so, they can't find him. So what they do is they're like, well, at least we have Jason. So they grab Jason and they grab uh, the people who are with them and they bring him before the city authorities. And they start making these false accusations against them. They say they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. These accusations are huge. You might not realize how huge these accusations are, but they are. Let's listen to what John Stott as He tries to uh, give us an idea of just how huge these things are. He says... This means that they were causing a radical social upheaval. The verb, and I should have asked Phil again, anastatu, has revolutionary, revolutionary overturns and is used in chapter 28 of an Egyptian terrorist who started a revolt. In particular, Paul and Silas were charged with high treason. It is hard to exaggerate the danger to which this exposed them. For the very suggestion of treason against, I'm assuming Caesar, I didn't put that word in there, often it proved fatal to the accused. The very suggestion of treason could prove fatal. Now, here they have a whole mob of people who are going to go up against these two and say, yeah, we heard it. It was treason. You're going to believe these two people who came from nowhere, who started this big upright, or are you going to believe us? So this was huge. They then take, have Jason pay money as a security personally. And what the commentaries say, this is probably so that Paul and Silas would leave and probably that they would never return. That's what they believe. Because in First Thessalonians, Paul writes and says, Satan has hindered us from coming. So they believe that the security was he could never come back. And doesn't this sound a lot like chapter 16, where this whole mob takes him up and they, and they bring him in front? That's what, I, that's what we saw last week was this mob that was doing it. But in that case, it wasn't the Jewish religious people. In that case, it was the, there was the slave girl who could read fortunes and 
you know, Paul cast the demon out, and so she, um, you know, they're going to lose all their money is what's going to happen. So they drag him before the mob. But here we have the religious people doing the exact same thing, dragging him across the mob. So Luke tells us, look, here's what these people do, right? The, the occult people are doing this, and now we have these Jewish people rejecting me and doing the exact same thing. He wants us to see that and understand how deep this rejection of Jesus Christ is. These people then, Paul and Silas go to Berea, right? These people follow him to Berea, agitating the stirring of the crowds. Berea is 50 miles away. Can you imagine the transportation back then, 2,000 years ago? How long would it take you to go 50 miles? And these people go 50 miles to continue to stir up crowds and to agitate these people. This is how deep this rejection goes. So why were they so jealous? It says they were jealous, and that's the reason why they did that. We don't know for sure, but once again, the commentaries say it probably had to do with the Gentiles following Paul and leaving the synagogue. Because it says that the Gentiles' presence in the synagogue probably gave the Jewish community a degree of acceptance in the predominantly Gentile city and probably also gave it financial support. So it's this small Jewish church in this big Gentile city. And so they have some support from these Gentiles, and Paul has taken it away. So it may have been this uh, security reason why they were so jealous. But Calvin says that's not enough. Calvin says there's a spiritual element to this rejection as well. I mean, think about it. Why would they travel 50 miles? Their town is protected. Paul has left. But read what, listen to what Calvin says here. He says, But in this passage, we must not consider the fury of the nation so much as the desperate malice of Satan. He urges his people on to disturb the kingdom of Christ and to prevent people's salvation. When in our day so many furious people set themselves against Christ's faithful ministers, it is not a man who caused the war, but Satan, the father of lies. And although the fighting does not always take the same form, Satan will never cease to weary those whom he knows to serve Christ faithfully, either openly or by insidious means or even with internal struggles. So we don't know why exactly they did this, but we do know this. They rejected Paul. They rejected his message. Ultimately, they rejected God. They rejected Christ. They persecuted Paul. Paul suffered for Christ at their hands. So those are the ones who rejected him. Now what we want to do is look at the ones who accepted him because there's a sharp contrast between these two sets of people in here. There's three groups who accept Paul as message of Christ. The Jews in Thessalonica, the Gentiles in Thessalonica, and the Jewish people in Berea. First of all, there are some Jews in Thessalonica who do accept Paul and his message, ultimately Christ, to accept Christ, and they want to follow Paul and Silas. Now, think about what this means to them to live in Thessalonica and to be Christians. Because look at how much they persecuted Jason. And now Paul and Silas are left. And when these people come back, 
all that hostility is going to find them as a target. So it's not going to be easy for them at all. There's many, many Gentiles in Thessalonica who become uh, saved. It says many devout Greeks followed, as well as leading women. Uh, women had a huge role in Macedonia at the time. Um, so the church at Thessalonica ends up becoming primarily a Gentile. The majority of the believers in Thessalonica become Gentiles. And so if you stop and think about it, these people are probably the, the most unlikely ones to believe, right? Because the Jewish people are waiting for the Messiah to come. This is what they've been waiting for hundreds of years, thousands of years, hundreds, thousands, um, for this. All Paul had to do was say, look, here's the scriptures, here's Christ, he is the Messiah. For these Gentiles, he had to prove to them that they even needed a Messiah, first of all, and then that Jesus Christ was this Messiah who would save them. And yet they are the ones who believe. The third group is the Jewish people in Berea. Luke says the Jewish... Let me start again. <laughs> I have a thing that says Luke says, but there's nothing under there, so I don't know what Luke says. So here's what happens. I'm going to tell you that instead. Um, the response in there is completely opposite of what the Thessalonians are. Because the Jews in, in um, Berea, it says, are more noble than the ones who are in Thessalonica. It says they received the word with eagerness. They went to the scriptures and they wanted to see if Paul was right about what he was saying. And it says they did this daily. The other one in Thessalonica says three Sabbath days, which would be like three Sundays or Saturdays. It would be three days of the week, so they took three weeks. Here, it was daily. Daily they went in. They searched the scriptures daily. And what was the result? It says, therefore many believed. Why did they believe? They received the word with eagerness. They studied the scripture daily. They were looking for the truth. They were looking for the promised Messiah, and Paul shows them Christ, and they believe. What can we learn from these responses? What can we learn from this piece that, you know, of these two different groups? We can learn that some will accept and some will reject. But we must go on and witness no matter what the outcome is. Sounds like a simple thing, right? But that's hard to understand emotionally. It's hard to do it when the time comes to reach out and to boldly proclaim something knowing that some of these people are going to reject us. And we need to expect suffering. That's one of the things that God told Paul. You will suffer. Paul suffered. Silas suffered. Peter suffered. Jesus suffered. We will suffer as well. Satan does not want you to witness to anybody. Satan does not want to see anybody saved. And he will do what he can to stop you. Whether it's people insulting you, whether it's opposition, or whether Calvin says it's an internal struggle, which is what we probably face, what, 95% of the times? How often is it actual opposition versus this internal struggle. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So this brings us to the next piece as we look at these different pieces. And these two, the piece we just got done in this one, really kind of go together because we want to examine the effectiveness of Paul's evangelism. Was it effective? 
What was the difference? Why in one place did they reject him so violently and in the other place accept him so eagerly? Why would some not only not listen to him, but lie about him? And others would grab the Bible and make sure that he was telling the truth. Did Paul say or do anything differently between these two things? He says no. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. He did the same thing. But the people responded differently. And the outcome was different. And so really in this piece of understanding this, what we want to understand is this. Because two, because one of two things will happen. I'm not quite sure if I made that point clear or not. But what we have is some people are going to accept, right? Some people are going to reject. That's the piece that we have to understand. Because if we don't understand this thing, um, I hope I'm not confusing you because I'm confusing myself. I got lost in the notes. So keep listening. I think when I get to the wrap-up point, it's going to make sense. But... <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read with some of my notes and hope that what I was saying led up to this. Here's what it is. One of two things will happen Now, if we, if we don't understand this. One is because if we don't understand this, we will always be disappointed if we're rejected. We will be depressed if people don't listen to us or if they don't take us seriously. We're going to be afraid. The other thing, um, and maybe let me just throw this in because I'm still confusing myself, Okay. <laughs> That's really never good. But it's God who saves and not us. God saves, not us. Maybe that's what I should have said first. And if we don't understand that it's God who saves and not us who saves, then when we're rejected, right, we're completely discouraged and depressed and down. Or if we think it's us who saves and not God, and God blesses us and people come to Christ, and they know us, or they through us, they know Christ, we're going to think it's us. We're going to think that it's us changing people. And we will be so prideful, it will be unbelievable. Because we talk to people, and they become Christians. It's amazing this power we have. Those are the two mistakes if we don't understand this piece. It is God who's in control. It is God who saves. Ephesians uh, chapter 2 says this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And so when we evangelize, we need to understand this. It doesn't matter how eloquently we can speak. It doesn't matter how poorly we can speak. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, how we present this thing or or anything. It's God who's going to save. It's God who does this. Acts 13 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It is God who saves. We have two more pieces to look at. And the next piece we can't find in Acts chapter 17, but we have to look elsewhere. And this piece is Paul's care for them afterwards. 
Because we have two letters to the Thessalonians, but we have none to the Bereans. You see, the Bereans already had a foundation that was laid. And when Paul came in, he just showed them that it was Jesus who was this Messiah. It says they searched the Scriptures daily. And as we learned last week, that is the major way to tell what God's will is. That's what Paul's message was last week, and that was his number one thing. The Scriptures are how we tell the will of God. The Bereans searched the Scriptures daily. If you notice, most of Paul's letters are correcting problems. That's what the majority of them be. So we can assume that the Bereans avoided many of these problems by searching the Scriptures, by knowing doctors, by living that way. Obviously, they didn't avoid them all, but we don't have any letters that are written to the Bereans kept. But this church in Thessalonica is mostly Gentiles. They don't have this foundation before them. And so Paul helps to lay it. And to paraphrase the intro that's found in the ESV version to 1 Thessalonians, it says 1 Thessalonians is a very affectionate letter. It says Paul encourages these new believers in their faith. He gives them assurance about eternal life. He tells them about Jesus' second coming. He exhorts them to godly living. He urges them to be at peace and to give thanks in all circumstances. How easy do you think it was for them to live at peace? How easy do you think it was for them to give thanks in all circumstances? And Paul exhorts them to that. In the second letter, Paul addresses a couple of problems that have come up. One of them is their misunderstanding about Christ's second return. They somehow or another got some idea from someone that he'd already come and that they had missed it. The other one, the problem that he addresses is that they're idle. And I didn't do the research, but I'm assuming they're not doing anything because they think that Christ is coming right away. If I'm mistaken, Phil will let me know afterwards. <laughs> but the point is, he addresses these two letters. The first one, he's encouraging them to do all these other things. He's building them up. And not only did he write letters, writing letters wasn't enough, but he sends Timothy back. And Timothy goes back to make sure that everything is all right, and Timothy stays with him. It wasn't enough for Paul simply to preach and just to let him go, to leave him on their own. He wanted to take more care of them, right? Those people traveled 50 miles, 50 miles to get to Berea in order to oppose Christ, to harass him, to serve the crowds. Can you imagine what their anger is going to be like after they fail in Berea and they come back home and they see all of these little Pauls walking around? And can you imagine what it's like if it's their friends or if their families who become Christians, who become Christ? followers. So what does Paul do? Paul encourages them. Paul writes them letters. He tries to get them on the start right track. He sends them Timothy. He tries to protect them. What can we learn from this point, from the way that Paul cared for them? We must do the same. We must follow up as well. It's just not enough to preach and let them go, not to check a box, but we need to care for people. We need to disciple people especially, especially when they're new and they're vulnerable, when they're going through hard times, when they're going through the depression, when their life feels like it's falling apart. We need to be there just as Paul was. So the band can come up as we look at this last piece. And this last piece along this journey 
is really just to examine ourselves. It's to look in the mirror and to ask these questions. What is your heart like? Is it like Paul's who would do so much, who would suffer so many things to spread the news that God saves people who are sinners? If it isn't, pray that God will give you this heart. To what land are you called to? Paul was called all over Asia, all over Europe. Europe. Where are we called? Most of us are called to be right here. We're called to be with our friends. We're called to be with our families. We're called to be with our neighbors. Where will you start? Who do you come in contact with? Who has God put in your life? And what obstacles are you willing to face? Are you willing to face someone laughing at you? Insulting you? Maybe making a face when you talk? A rude comment? Are you willing to have someone look down on you to change their opinion? And the last question is, whose hand is this outcome in anyway? We must always remember it is God who saves. If we don't remember that, we get caught up in worrying about all these things that are completely out of control. Acts 13.48 says, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, the one thing that I cry out for more than anything else, Lord, is that you will give us a heart like Paul. That you give us a heart who says, I would give up my own salvation if it meant saving my friends. I'd give up my own salvation if it meant saving my family. I'd give up my own salvation if it meant saving those people at work. Lord, give us this heart. Give us a heart, Lord, that says, I have been forgiven much. Fill our hearts with much love, Lord. We don't know how much we've been forgiven. We can't even comprehend it because we live in this society. We live in this world. And that's all we know. We don't know what holiness is. Your holiness looks like. So let us know, Lord, what we have been forgiven from. Let us know the weight of our sins. If you don't do this for us, we will never know. So I pray, Lord, that you will let us know how much we've been forgiven so that we might love much. And then, Lord, these other things will follow, Lord. The method when we see our friends and stuff, we'll know how to talk to them coming from where they're from. The message will be, Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. And that follow-up, Lord, well, actually, even before the follow-up, those who reject or those who accept, we still know it's your sovereign will. So we won't get discouraged on the one hand. We won't be puffed up with pride on the other hand. 
And then, Lord, finally, the follow-up care. Lord, we will just naturally love these people. We will want to build them up, Lord. Let us build up our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, Lord, because you have saved them, because you have loved them. And Lord, we just thank you that this is all your work. Holy Spirit, let us do your work. We pray in your name. Amen.